Alicia. Thanks for coming out tonight, everybody. Uh, it's a bit rainy and stormy, but thank you. Uh, is this image familiar? Has anyone seen that before? This man stood on the side of the Princess Highway at Arncliffe for many, many years throughout my childhood. And whenever we would go that way in the car, my brother and I would eagerly look out the window trying to find the UFO man. I swear I thought he had an alfoil hat, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> but you see, his sign is not actually about UFOs. He quotes, uh, he references Isaiah 66:15, which says, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with the flames of fire. The sign says, UFO, chariots, Isaiah 66:15, Christ back. It's obviously not clear what he's trying to say, but maybe he's referencing that the chariots are the UFO, the UFOs, the chariots, and Jesus is on the chariots. Who knows? Anyway, people will always do and say wacky things in re relation to the return of Jesus. Uh, but in this letter tonight, Peter wants to stir us to remember one certain truth, the truth that Jesus will return. In chapter 1, uh, as Caitlin brought to us, Peter was reminding us of the confidence we can have in the faith that we've received. Then, as Ella showed us last week in chapter 2, Peter is warning us about false teachers who will come from among us, twisting the scriptures to entice unsteady souls. Tonight, we'll hear Peter plead with us to remember the promises of God so we can hold on to them with confidence when the world scoffs at us. Let me pray and we'll get into it. Lord, please be with us tonight as we open your word. Through your spirit, help me to speak clearly so that my beloved sisters might know you more while we wait patiently for Jesus to return. Amen. <clears throat> so in chapter 3, Peter writes to remind us of three important things. That Jesus will return, that Jesus is the patient judge, and how we are to live while we wait for his return. Peter is reminding us in order to stir us into action to remember and respond. In verse 2, we see exactly what it is that we are to remember. The predictions from the prophets and the apostles. The prophets and the apostles were the ones who had been trusted by God throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to pass on the words of God, the actual words of truth spoken to them by God, not myths or interpretations by man, as we saw in chapter 1. So what is the prediction? Well, it's twofold. Jesus will return, and secondly, that his return means judgment. Jesus' return is described in chapter 10 as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was a phrase used in the Old Testament and New Testament by the prophets and the apostles to speak about the day of God's judgment. We see it in many of the Old Testament books, including Joel, Jeremiah, Amos, there's so many. In the New Testament, the same day is referred to by the apostles, but in a slightly different way. Peter, Paul and James repeatedly refer to it as the coming of the Lord. Paul calls it the day of wrath and the last day. And the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus himself says, on that day. That day is the day that Jesus returns. That day is the day the final promise of God is fulfilled. That's part one of the prediction that Peter wants us to remember. 
Jesus will return. Part two is judgment. The day that Jesus returns is also the final day when judgment comes upon the earth and all its inhabitants. We saw this last term in Ecclesiastes in Bible study. Chapter 12, verse 13 and 14 says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We also saw it last week in chapter 2, verse 9. God keeps the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Jesus will return as promised. Jesus' return will bring judgment as promised. This is the message that the prophets and the apostles were to pass on to the people. And this is the same message we're having passed on to us here tonight in Helensburg, 2,000 years later. Remembering the predictions show us that Christ's return and final judgment have been an ongoing promise of God for thousands of years. We know that God's promises were fulfilled over and over in the Old Testament when we recount events such as Sarah having a baby at 90, God providing manna in the desert, the flood, the rescue out of Egypt. And in the New Testament, we see the biggest fulfilment, the sending of the promised Messiah from David's line, Jesus born as a baby in Bethlehem. And then, of course, his death and resurrection, which ultimately provide our salvation, our promised salvation. These promises and their exact fulfilment remind us and encourage us that God is a promise-keeping God. He doesn't forget or change his mind. He keeps his promises. But there is one promise that has not yet been fulfilled. Jesus' return. We should find comfort when we remember these predictions and the fulfilled promises because it reminds us that God is a promise-keeping God. If God promises it, it will happen. We can hold on to his promise and so we can hold on to the promise that Jesus will return. I'm pretty sure all of us tonight here have broken a promise at some stage, whether intentionally or unintentionally. We can have the best intentions to fulfil it, but life happens. Kids, work, sickness, pandemic. But God's promises are not our promises. We break our promises, either intentionally or unintentionally. God does not break his promises. God does not make a promise he won't keep. God does not make a promise he can't keep. God does not forget his promises. God has promised that Jesus will return, and so Jesus will return. It was promised by God, and so it is certain. So we saw that the prediction we're to remember is that Jesus will return, and his return will bring judgment. Now let's look at what judgment means. His judgment brings salvation and destruction. Salvation is promised for those who remember and hold fast to the promises of God. Look at verse 13 with me. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here, Peter reminds us what we are waiting for. Our future inheritance, the new heavens, the new earth, no more sin, no more suffering. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 11, those who hold fast will be welcomed into the, new eternal, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Salvation is promised. What a magnificent promise. 
But destruction is also promised for the ungodly, for those who reject Christ. Look at verse 7. The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And in verse 10, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Did you see those words? Judgment, destruction, dissolved, exposed. This is what the ungodly, those who reject Christ, will face when he returns. Peter is pleading with us to remember God's promises so we will hold fast and not face destruction. Okay, so we have Jesus' return, which means judgment, salvation and destruction. But why has Peter, who is in jail awaiting his execution, taken the time to write a second time about this? They're excellent things to remember. But does he actually have a particular reason? Well, he does. Verse 3 tells us. Look at verse 3. Peter writes, because scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. We live in the last days now. I've been scoffed at. I had it said to me one day, everyone will realise that Christianity is the biggest hoax ever played on the world. I wasn't old enough or mature enough in my faith to have an answer at the time, but I knew it wasn't true somewhere deep inside. We live in the last days now. The last days started when Jesus ascended and the last days will continue until he returns again. We are living in the time that Peter spoke about. Peter particularly refers to those who are scoffing because the length of time that Jesus is taking to come back is too long. Verse 4 says, They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The scoffers in Peter's day and the scoffers today say, it's been too long. The world just keeps on keeping on. If he was going to return, he would have returned by now. Just give it up. Because Jesus hasn't returned yet, the scoffers try to make us question all the promises of God. Just because this one promise hasn't yet been fulfilled. But you see, God never gave a time frame for Jesus' return. Even Jesus says in Mark, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. How can scoffers even begin to imagine that they know when Jesus would return, if Jesus doesn't? Who are the scoffers to outline a, outline a time frame for God? To tell God he's late. We should have done it by now. Jesus will return when the time is right. And when he does, there will be judgment. There will be salvation. And there will be destruction. The scoffers are here now. How do you stay strong against scoffing? Do you ever give much thought to the promises of God, the prediction of Jesus' return and the promises that await us? We know Jesus will return, but we don't know when. What if it was tonight? 
Peter wants us to remember all those things so that when we are scoffed at and mocked for our faith, for holding out for Jesus' return, we can recall and hold on to the promises of God, the hope promised to us when Jesus returns, the promise of his eternal kingdom. Peter reminds us again, like he did in chapter 2, verse 9, that in the Christian walk there will be trials. In chapter 2, Peter told us of the trials that will come from within the church, the false prophets who will come from among us, twisting the scriptures and denying Jesus. Now in chapter 3, Peter directs our attention to outside the church, to the world, the world we live in, where unbelievers will scoff at us, laugh at us, make us the butt of a joke, taunt us. Every day the world scoffs at us through media, our friends, our family. It scoffs at us for giving up our, giving up our free time to go to church, to go to Bible study, for not getting drunk, for having different views on marriage, sex, money. Have you been scoffed at for your faith? Maybe it's been said to you, what's the point? He hasn't come yet, he's not going to. Just live the life that makes you happy. You do you. Has your faith been weakened by scoffers? Has scoffing made you doubt the promises of God? Have you been tempted to give up your faith because it's too hard to fit in with your friends or the world? Maybe scoffers have tempted you to think you can do business with Jesus later. Live life now. Think about Jesus when you're old. If your faith is evident in your life, you will be scoffed at, you will be made fun of and be taunted. If you don't align with the world, you will be scoffed at. If you are not scoffed at, maybe this is something you need to think and pray about. Maybe you hide your faith for fear of scoffing or rejection. Peter points out though, that scoffers are deliberately overlooking some information. Information that would crush their argument, so they just conveniently ignore it. Look at verse 5. It says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. They deliberately overlook, they ignore events that fully reveal and confirm God's power to create and to destroy simply by his word. They overlook things that show God's faithfulness and his power to fulfill his promises. Peter told us how the scoffers were overlooking things, but now Peter turns to the beloved to the believers, to us, and tells us that we also must be diligent not to overlook something important. It's our counter-argument to the scoffers. Verse 8 says, Do not overlook this one fact, that for God one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Here Peter references Psalm 90 verse 4, which says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Sometimes days go quickly. 
when you have preschool or school-age children, man, that day just flies by. There is not enough hours in the day. Nine to three is like a blink. Sometimes days are really long. The people that I drive now uh, in the community transport, a lot of them are elderly and frail and they have no family. They tell me their days are long. Have you ever wished that an eight-hour workday would pass as quickly as eight hours of sleep does? Or that eight hours of sleep would feel as long as an eight-hour workday? <laughs> Time doesn't change, but our perspective does. God is eternal. So what is time when you're eternal? When we are tempted by scoffers who say it's been too long, we're to remember that God created time. He's not bound by it. Peter warns us not to overlook this fact. He will return when he knows the time is right. Time is time. It doesn't change. Our perspective does. So why hasn't he come back yet? Well, Jesus is the patient judge. He hasn't returned yet because he is patient. He is actively waiting and there's a reason for his waiting. Have a look at verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's waiting with a purpose so that none will perish. We should be thankful that Jesus hasn't returned yet. Verse 15 says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. His patience is for our salvation. It's not for our frustration or our torment. It's for our salvation and for the salvation of those who do not yet know Jesus. We all have friends or family or loved ones that don't know Jesus. He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't forgotten. He's not too busy. There's a good reason he hasn't returned yet. He waits so that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if Jesus can wait patiently for us, surely we can wait patiently for him, even in the face of scoffers who say it's been too long. So how do we live while we wait? Knowing that Jesus will return and the earth and all that is in it will be dissolved. Peter addresses that exact question in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Peter outlines five ways that we are to actively but patiently wait. Firstly, we see at the end of verse 11... We are to live a holy and godly life. So what does that look like? Well, he's told us what an ungodly life looks like. In chapter 2, verse 10, he tells us that the ungodly indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And again in chapter 3, verse 3, they follow their own sinful desires. If we're to live a holy and godly life, we are to put our sinful desires and defiling passions to death, not follow them as the ungodly do. Sinful desires and defiling passions refers to anything coming from our sinful human nature. Greed, selfishness, lust, anger, hatred. 
Living in the last days means we will be tempted by sin. But we are to be putting sin to death every single day. Romans 6.12 says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Jesus died, so you are no longer a slave to sin. You can overcome it. But you need to be on the lookout for it. Our sinful desires and our defiling passions can creep in ever so quietly if we are not on guard for them. At the conference that the staff team went to recently, Paul Tripp described an African safari that he went on. And he had the experience of seeing a lion take down an antelope. The lion, although large and deadly, stalked its prey without a sound, just out of sight, watching, waiting, until the right moment when the weakest antelope came along and then it pounced and took it down. Our sinful desires are like the lion. They're stealth. They're hidden in the shadows, ready to pounce and destroy us when we are weak or if we are not on the lookout. We need to be keeping an eye out and taking swift action when we see them. Secondly, we see in verse 12, we are to be waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord. We have to wait patiently, however long it takes. It may not be in our lifetime, but we wait. We don't give up. Someone said to me the other day, will you be disappointed if Jesus doesn't return in your lifetime? I said, no, it's fine. They knew I was writing this. I said, can I ask you a question? We have a a good relationship that I could ask this. It's a bit harsh, possibly. I said, can I ask you a question? They said, yes. I said, will you be disappointed when Jesus returns and you realise you got it wrong? The person said, hmm, well, I guess I'll just have to say sorry. I said, but it's too late then. And I went on to read the rest of my sermon to them. (laughs) Watch this space. (laughs) He may not return in our lifetime, but we have to wait. Have you seen this picture before? The first time I saw this, I thought it was really cool. I thought it was a really great idea. They don't want to wait in line, so they just put their shoes there. (laughs) They've shown their intention to wait by putting their shoes there. They've marked their spot, but they're not actively waiting. They've tapped out. They're distracted. They've probably even, some have left to go to the toilet or do something else while they wait. Wait. Some look like they're asleep. This may be convenient and more comfortable, but it's not active waiting. We are to wait actively, patiently. And we hasten the day of the Lord by sharing the gospel while we wait. We don't hide it away. We live it out and share it with those around us. Because God's waiting for everybody to reach repentance. None to perish. Thirdly, in verse 14, it says, We are to be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. While we wait, we don't have a a license to live life our own way. To do what we want. We've been washed clean by Jesus' blood. And our salvation is secure. But we are called to live a life worthy of his great sacrifice. 
Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We are to live a holy and godly life. We are to be ready and prepared for Jesus' return, no matter how long it takes. Not putting off our call to holy and godly living because we think we've got time on our side. Fourthly, we're to prepare. Verse 17 says, Therefore, are you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. To know something beforehand means we can prepare. Peter told us beforehand that there will be scoffers and lawless people so we can take care. Take care that we are not carried away by what they say. Prepared. Prepared for trials. Prepared for scoffers. The whole point of remembering the predictions of the prophets and apostles is so we can remember the truth of God and his promises when we are scoffed at, when we doubt. You can only know the truth if you know God. You can only know God through his word, through his son. This is how we take care and don't lose our stability. We need to be wise and discerning in what we hear and what we do and who and what we fill our time with. How we nourish and fuel ourselves, as Caitlin said. We prepare by knowing God and nourishing our soul with his word so we won't be carried away and lose our stability when we are scoffed at. We prepare. Summer is around the corner, despite tonight, and by all accounts it's likely to be a bad bushfire season. That's not a certainty though. I'm sure they are expert meteorologists that have said that, but they can't be certain. But a lot of us, myself included, will prepare for bushfire season, and that's wise to do where we live. But we prepare for something that might happen, not something that's certain. Scoffers are certain. Jesus' return is certain. We should prepare by knowing the truth. We need to prepare now because the moment Jesus returns is too late, like I told my friend. Verse 10 tells us Jesus will return like a thief. We don't know when a thief will come. It will be unexpected. Jesus will break into this world at the determined time and it will be done. There will be no more warning or preparing time. Even Jesus talks about being prepared in Matthew 25 when he tells the parable of the ten virgins. Five wise and five foolish. The five foolish are not prepared for the bridegroom so they get locked out and told to leave. Imagine their horror when they realise it's too late. The preparation time has passed. Jesus' return is certain. We must prepare for the day of the Lord. Fifthly and finally, in verse 18, Peter tells us that we should be growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour. What does growing in grace mean? Well, we know grace is an undeserved gift and that we are saved by grace through faith. But can we grow in grace? First and foremost, I need to highlight that when we are, when we are converted, we receive the absolute full measure of God's grace. 
God's grace to us does not grow. But growing in grace is something that we are to do. Like the plant that Caitlin spoke about, we are to tend to it. We are to nourish ourselves with God's word, with prayer and with fellowship. We don't do this to earn our salvation, but in response to the salvation already won for us and to strengthen us in the face of scoffing so that we hold on to the truth, the promises of God. Growing in grace is knowing, loving and trusting in the promises of God and the saving power of Jesus. And it is only by God's grace that we can know, can love and can trust God. Knowing God more leads to loving God more, leads to trusting God more. This is growing in grace. Growing in grace cannot be separated from growing in knowledge. You will not grow in grace if you are not growing in knowledge. Knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, but also knowledge of ourselves, our brokenness and our desperate need of a Saviour. C.S. Lewis uh, refers to Acts 2 verse 42 when he thinks about growing in grace. Acts 2 verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Four simple foundational things that grow us in grace and knowledge of our Lord. They devoted themselves to this. Full commitment of time, energy, money, thoughts. Devotion to something will always result in growth. What do you devote yourself to? Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? What thoughts occupy your mind the most? Recently, Kel and myself and our, our girls were heading to the city to see a show. Kel was mocking me because she knew previously that I had 300 tabs open in my safari. <laughs> I don't see a problem with that, but anyway. <laughs> this particular night, I only had 71. <laughs> but we scroll, I scrolled through them to find out what I had, just as a bit of a curiosity. Doctor's appointments, Bible stuff, Christian articles, online shopping, recipes broad spectrum of things. Each of us then took turns to share our tabs. They only had a couple, which was very boring. <laughs> I reflected at the time that this is possibly a good way to see what we're devoting ourselves to. What tabs have you got open? What tabs are consuming you? The more we devote ourselves to Jesus every day through reading his word, prayer and fellowship, then by his grace, his unmerited favour, our faith grows and so our grace grows. Charles Spurgeon says, we may always test whether we are growing by asking ourselves these questions. Do I know more of Christ today than I did yesterday? Do I live nearer to Christ today than I did a little while ago? Increase in the knowledge of Christ is the evidence as well as the cause of true growth in grace. So we've seen that Peter wants us to remember God's promises, 
to stay focused on eternity so we don't get distracted and our faith weakened by the world and by scoffers. Jesus will return. He will return to bring final judgment and salvation for his people and destruction for the ungodly. That is certain. But God is patient so that none may perish and all may reach repentance. And so it's taking a while. Hold fast, sisters. He will come. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, thank you that you are a patient, promise-keeping God. Please help us to stand firm when we are faced with scoffers, knowing that your promises are certain. Help us to live a holy and godly life while we wait for the day of the Lord. Amen.